A place of destruction. An Old Testament story, fact, or fiction? Has this biblical location really been found? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat will be discussing this very place along with his guest, Dr. Eugene Merrill a scholar in the area of apologetics. Dr. Merrill will share his opinion as they discuss the location of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's Pat now with part one of this exciting interview. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to today's challenges. Well, I'm sure you've heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities so wicked that God destroyed them by fire in Genesis 19. Is this story fact or is it fiction? Well, here to help us answer this question is a premier Old Testament scholar, Dr. Eugene Merrill. Dr. Eugene Merrill serves as Distinguished Professor of Old Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary and the Criswell Bible College. He's got two earned PhDs from Columbia University in Near Eastern Languages and Literatures and from Bob Jones University in Old Testament Interpretation. He is an author of numerous books including one that is still read by Bible colleges and seminaries throughout the world, The Kingdom of Priests, A History of Old Testament Israel. And so it's a great privilege to have Dr. Merrill on the show with us today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Merrill. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Well, we've done a few shows with you on the Exodus, but here we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah today. But Dr. Merrill, before I ask you about this recent site, could you tell us about archaeology and its relationship with the Bible and the Old Testament? Has archaeology upheld the historical accuracy of the Bible, or has it thrown the historicity of the Bible into question? Well, I think what we have to remember is that just as the Bible must be exegeted, that is, the languages of the Bible must be understood on their own terms and uh, in line with proper uh, grammatical and hermeneutical procedure, so archaeology also has to be, in a sense, it has to be exegeted. It has to be understood in terms of its own context and so forth. And I would not certainly want to elevate archaeology above the written text because we have the written text and it's uh, very much self-interpreting. Whereas archaeology, sometimes uh, the argument is rather circular in that dates are assigned a given place, and then if another place is found with the same kind of pottery characteristics, for example, it'll immediately be assigned the same dates. And now if the dates of the first place are wrong, then obviously the dates of the, uh, of the second place will also be wrong. So uh, they're, um, they're complementary. I don't denigrate archaeology at all. I think that when it's done right, just as when the Bible's done right, you're never going to find any kind of a conflict and I am not aware of any well-researched and well-documented archaeological find that has run contrary uh, to the meaning of the biblical text. Well, in light of what you just said, you know, when we hear of discoveries that seem to go against the biblical accounts, how should we approach such news? I mean, we don't want to ignore it or dismiss it too early, nor should we allow it to rattle our faith. How should we as lay people approach such issues? Well, I think we do need to learn what we can and listen as 
carefully and sympathetically as we can to whatever is out there in the world of secular science. And woe unto us if we don't pay any attention at all. Uh, For example, this uh, exploit we've just been uh, hearing about, the rocket going all the way to Pluto, I mean, one has to stand back in amazement at the genius of the human mind that can uh, create something like that. And I am very much in awe at the uh, tremendous results that have come about through a good discipline, sort of an archaeological science. But if we come to a place where it seems from those who make these claims that they run contrary to Scripture, then I think we have to put our stake down one way or the other. We either have to say, okay, I've got to re-examine the text, which I think we ought to anyway, incidentally, re-examine it, see if we've been understanding it correctly. But if so, then we have to say, look, uh, the text is clear. It says a certain thing. If there's a conflict, it's not the text that's uh, problematic. It's got to be the archaeological data have themselves been misinterpreted, misunderstood, misapplied. And I I think there's uh, no place for sitting on the fence and saying maybe two contrasting ideas, maybe they're both correct. That is so, it's a logical fallacy. You know, when we read articles like that, basically, I believe there are two approaches, aren't there? The minimalist and what we'll call the maximalist. Is that correct? Well, that's true. And what's the difference between those two? Well, the the term is used uh, specifically in reference to archaeological work in what used to be called Palestine, but in Israel and the West Bank area, the Transjordan, that whole Levant area. And so that's the region that's in mind when uh, maximalist and minimalist terms are used. And the minimalist is uh, inclined to come to the text with the attitude that is guilty unless proven innocent, and the maximalist will say, no, it's innocent unless proven guilty. Uh, That's oversimplification. But the minimalist will tend to uh, deny the historicity of uh, biblical events that are particularly early, that are very, very ancient. And the closer that... uh, uh, that we come to the more modern period, the more inclined the minimalist is uh, to become a maximalist. <laughs> and the maximalist is a person who's inclined, like well, I think most evangelical scholars, who are inclined to take the text at face value and, and still be open to the possibility of evidence making some changes. But they have to do with dating, fundamentally with dating. Dating and um, the proper placement of archaeological finds within some kind of a chronological uh, pattern or scheme. Right. Now, talk to us a little bit about the dating. How do archaeologists come to the dating of a find? They use numerous techniques. Some people believe, oh, all they use is carbon-14, but it's a lot more detailed than that, isn't it? Well, certainly. uh, Carbon-14, first of all, is useful only with organic material. Uh, It can be anywhere from ash, of course, any wooden product, uh, bone, uh, anything that was alive at one time, plant or animal, can be subject to uh, carbon-14 and can be uh, analyzed within a certain range. The older the material, the less exact the carbon-14 dating is going to be. So they speak about something being uh, 2000 B.C., give or take 300 years Well, you see, that's lost a good deal of precision. But if you say something was a 1,000 years ago, give or take uh, uh, five years, one way or the other, 
then that seems to be quite quite reliable. And but that's only for organic material. There are ways of uh, isotopes and that sort of thing that can be used uh, chemically to date even uh, clay material and and even stone material, depending on the nature of the stone, the content of it, and so forth. And so it is possible with uranium-235 and other forms of uh, chronological measurement to uh, date with much less precision than you can with carbon-14, but at least you can date or make a stab at it with, with material that is not organic. Those are the two main ways of doing it. Now, there are other ways uh, of doing it. For example, if uh, some uh, living material, let's say uh, wood, was found, then there will be rings perhaps in tree trunks or something like that. And the rings can be counted and obviously will yield a certain number of years, but you've got to know when the tree died <laughs> before you can begin to make a whole lot of um, a sense out of the number of rings in the tree. And so, frankly, a lot of it is uh, is very circular. I have spent a number of years doing archaeology, and I can test to that. Uh, that is that, as I said a few minutes ago, a date is rather arbitrarily assigned to a given uh, site on the basis of certain pottery formation. And so if the same kind of formation is found in another site, maybe 100 miles away, and it's the same kind of pottery, same kind of shape and form and so on, the date is automatically applied to it without further consideration because it matches what was found 100 miles away, uh, not considering anything like environmental changes or anything of the sort. And so it's kind of uh, circular. So we say that uh, Site A is uh, 1000 BC. How do you know? Well, Site B, which has the same kind of material, uh, is uh, 1000 BC. Well, how do you know that? Well, that goes to another one that we found someplace else that has that date. And you, you chase this rabbit trail, and after a while, you lose uh, a great deal of confidence in the method. So we don't want to dismiss biblical discoveries, but on the other hand, when we hear of sensational discoveries, like we found the chariot wheels of Pharaoh at the bottom of the Red Sea, or we found Noah's Ark, uh, we should be more cautious and not immediately jump on board either. You know, I know many pastors who proclaim these sensational discoveries from the pulpit, only to find out later they were false. Then we got egg all over our face. You said it exactly, and I think maybe more harm, if if anything, is done by making false claims in favor of an alleged uh, attempt to prove the historicity of the Bible uh, than is made by uh, uh, critics who um, are of the minimalist camp or whatever they might be. Because we who are apologists for the Word of God, we'd better be very, very sure that we're not just defensive, but that we're offensive, and not offensive in the bad sense. I'm afraid we're that way all the time. But we need to go on the offense, and and our arguments better be founded on very, very good exegesis and science, both, or as you say, we're going to be terribly embarrassed. And that does happen. I am plagued all the time by people who say, I've got a video I want you to watch that shows uh, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And uh, it's near the bus station in East Jerusalem, underneath Calvary. And the blood of the cross dripped down through Calvary and dripped onto the top of the 
of the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, I've seen that one. Have you? uh, Well, there is absolutely nothing to that. The Israelis have heard that and scoffed at it, of course, because they know there's nothing under what we can, you know, call Golgotha there at the Garden Tomb area. There's nothing under there. And yet the, the story persists. That does a huge amount of harm because we're all put in the same basket. Uh, those of us who uh, don't fall for that stuff are accused of being just as naive as those that go around trying to make uh, a great deal out of something that has no real substance. And it's very harmful to the cause of not just biblical authenticity, but to the cause of Christ, to the gospel itself, is undermined to a certain extent by these kinds of claims that prove to be fallacious and with no uh, uh, substance to them whatsoever. Right. So for us lay people who don't have access to the scholarly journals out there, how should we approach these issues when we hear of of claims like this? It, It seems like if it's too good to be true, we should be very cautious about it. That seems to be the wise approach, isn't it? Well, I think so. Yeah, if it's too good to be true, you know, the old saying is it, it probably is not true. And I think that's a good uh, good axiom. But, well, almost any city of any size, in America at least, will have some kind of an institution, a seminary or some kind of a training institution, where there hopefully would be some conservative uh, uh, scholars and thinkers who could be used as a resource. And then goodness knows with the uh, Internet, <clears throat> there's access to all kinds of both bad and good stuff. And I think it becomes a matter of finding some sites that uh, that are trustworthy and uh, taking a look at what, uh, uh, what some of these sites have to say. One thing I have found, though, it's kind of humorous in a way, uh, somebody will uh, say, hey, I've got this thing I want to show you. I'm convinced that it's right. Please take a look at it. I do, and I say it's all a bunch of hogwash. They get angry with me, (laughs) Uh, very, very upset, because they thought they had something there that was really going to turn the world upside down, and instead they have found uh, nothing of the kind. So I'm a little... uh, I try to find out, (laughs) does this person really want to know, or does he just want his uh, false ideas uh, uh, verified? And uh, I may not even... (laughs) may not take a lot of time with those that whose minds are made up and can't be convinced otherwise. Right. Well, that's a good balanced approach from a seasoned scholar here who's been studying archaeology for decades. Well, Dr. Merrill, there's a recent excavation at a place called Tal el-Hammam, northeast of the Dead Sea in the country of Jordan, which many now believe to be the site of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, before we get your opinion on this site, tell us about this dig and, and what's been discovered there. Well, let me say, first of all, the lead excavator is a personal friend of mine, a man whom I respect very, very highly as a most competent archaeologist with, I think, a special talent in the reading of of pottery, a pottery expert, Steve Collins. And um, so whatever I have to say of a negative sort is not ad hominem. I I love the man and respect him very, very much. But uh, Steve has... um, has found, indeed, a very interesting site, Hammam, which is, as you indicate, just on the northeast of the the Dead Sea. If you take the main road from the Dead Sea on up to Amman, Jordan, you pass very, very close to it, and it's a very large site. 
and has been called hammam for oh for hundreds of years, but it had never been uh, systematically excavated until Steve began to work on it several years back. And uh, he had concluded, even before he began to dig, that this was a likely site for Sodom. And he based his views on the conversation that was held between Abraham and Lot as they began to consider the problem of uh, not having enough pasture land for both of them in the highlands of, uh, of Canaan. And so we're told that... Uh, they were able to look from the site where they stood, which is near Mamre, near Hebron, and they could see the cities of the plain that were well-watered and green and, uh, and so forth, as we're told in uh, Genesis 18 and 19. Well, uh, you cannot see the traditional sites of uh, Babathra and Numera, which are way down on the uh, lower end of the Dead Sea, 40 miles south, and uh, it just can't be seen from from Mamre. And, um, and so Steve said, well, if that text means anything at all and is to be taken at face value, then the site of Sodom must have been considerably further north. And uh, so he has stood there, as have I and others, and have looked over there, and you can see it quite nicely. You can see Hamam. And he said the size of it and uh, of the tell, and... Uh, uh, and by the way, you pronounced it correctly, tal in Arabic, but tal in Hebrew. So if somebody says tal hamam, it doesn't mean it's high. It's just an Arabic term for a tell or a ruin. But in any case, you can see it easily. It's a very uh, a prominent location. So Steve began to dig and dig and dig, and he has found all kinds of stuff. He's gone way back to the at least the Middle Bronze Age, which is around 2000, 1500, and I think even tapped into the early Bronze Age, which uh, is customarily dated from around 3000 to 2000 BC, which would be the time of Abraham and the patriarchs, according to the maximalist or early date uh, position on the patriarchs. Uh, Steve got down to a, a place toward the end of the Middle Bronze Age, that is around 1600 or so, according to standard dating, he found evidence of a massive destruction of the place, which he attributed then uh, to the uh, overthrow of uh, Sodom by the Lord in the days of Lot and, uh, and how that the, uh, it and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain were, were demolished, destroyed, and buried. And Steve said that uh, this has got to be the date of the destruction of Sodom. Well, the trouble is, according to the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text of the Bible, when one adds up all the years and so forth and does a chronological mapping of things, then the city of Sodom was destroyed closer to 2000 BC rather than 1600. Now, and I speak this out of love again, and uh, of, of Steve, and the man's heart is right. He loves he loves Christ with all his heart. So we need to settle that right off. It's a, it's a dispute between two brothers. But Steve has um, decided the only way to uh, validate his claim and to give it legs, as it were, is to suggest that the previous uh, working out of, uh, of biblical chronology has been wrong and that we need to lower the dates of Abraham by three or 400 years in order to make it fit. Uh, to me, that is uh, uh, methodologically an inappropriate way to do things. 
and want to uh, let the Bible speak for itself in terms of chronology, and then worry about the 1600 B.C. destruction uh, evidence, uh, you know, as a separate issue. And I think it can be explained in, in, in a number of different ways. Uh, for example, he may be wrong in the 1600 date for the destruction. Uh, and um, Or it may not be uh, Sodom, after all, maybe someplace else. So there are a lot of things that need to be proven there. Uh, now, I've taken an awful long time with the answer. I hope that has been um, clear to your listeners and uh, perhaps would be helpful. Yes, that is. So you, basically, you don't think this is the site basically based on the chronology. Exactly, exactly. Now, I have done a lot of archaeological work, but I'm not an archaeologist. It'd be like somebody working around a hospital, fixing the plumbing and the electrical work and so forth, and then saying he's a doctor. Well, I'm not quite that bad off. I know something about archaeology, <laughs> but but I'm not in Steve uh, Collins' camp by any means. I have worked, however, with uh, excellent archaeologists, and uh, I know something of their method and uh, and uh, how it how it ought to be done, and uh, how things ought to be dated. And yes, I think that uh, my only uh, independent argument, uh, by independent I mean one that I've thought about for years and years, uh, working on uh, biblical chronology, is that it's impossible to date Abraham 400 years later than the uh, chronological uh, pattern of the biblical uh, texts themselves without uh, then saying that the data of the biblical texts are incorrect uh, or that um, they're not reliable. And I would far rather say that the archaeological evidence is unreliable than I would to say that the biblical text is unreliable. So it gets back to my kind of a preliminary uh, comment that we have to stake our claim one way or the other and which side of the fence we're going to be on. And I'm afraid that in this case, which is a, a, a good example, uh, then the, uh, the wrong authority is, uh, is given pride of place. The Bible is forced to say something that it really doesn't want to say in order that a, a particular hypothesis might be sustained in regard to the archaeological evidence. So chronologically or time-wise, there's a difficulty there. But what about geographically? Is this location in the right place i understand oh i i, I like his location oh you do <laughs> i like his location that's the trouble uh, if i just didn't like his location and everything else i'd be the end of the matter but when i say i like it i don't mean that i'm persuaded that that's the right place but i think he makes some excellent points in regard to its location for example uh, where the hebrew term that's used to describe the location of the cities of the plain is the uh, Kirkar Haryadain, that is the circle of the Jordan. Steve has showed that uh, where the Jordan flows into the into the uh, Dead Sea, there is a, a kind of a circular plain there of alluvium that's been deposited over the hundreds of thousands of years and uh, making a kind of a semicircular shape. And uh, Kirkar does mean circle. It means a rounded sort of thing. And uh, so the circle of the Jordan, that fits very, very nicely. But on the other hand, if you go down to the south end of the Dead Sea, you've got precisely the same thing, uh, where you have uh, the outflow. Uh, well, not there's no outflow, but you have an inflow from the south of the uh, Zared River 
and a couple of other wadis that flow into the Dead Sea from the south. But you end up also with uh, with a kind of a uh, estuary at the south end that looks very much like the one at the north end. Now, the problem is, why is it called the Kirkar Haryadain, the Circle of the Jordan, if it's located 40 miles or so south of where the Jordan empties into the Dead Sea? So you see, that's, that's I think, in, that sort of favors Steve's point of view. I have visited all these places. I have visited Babatra and Numera numerous times. Be sure to join us next time for the conclusion of Pat's interview with Dr. Eugene Merrill on the topic of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on that Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available for you including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. <laughs>